It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleague Stephen Bush and Anusha Kellyan. This week we talk about whether the UK is heading for a second spike and you ask us whether Boris Johnson could survive a second spike, politically rather than, you know, materially. So uh, welcome back to, to me, I suppose, back from my holiday, bringing this to you from um, my back room at home in Belfast. So while I've been away, things have gone a bit quiet on the Westminster front in lots of ways. Parliament has now gone on recess and it's sort of the beginning of city season, even though we are still in the middle of a very serious pandemic. So like the story that's been dominating headlines has been the new imposition of a quarantine on people returning from Spain into the UK. And then the attendant discussion about whether the UK is heading for a second wave, which I suppose we ultimately don't know the answer to, but it's still probably worth discussing. So looking into our crystal balls, Stephen and Anoush, Matt Hancock this morning was on the airwaves saying that the government is concerned about the possibility of a second wave in the coming weeks. How likely do you think that is? Or is that even the right question to be asking? Well, now that we're hearing ministers like Matt Hancock completely change their sort of rhetoric from the eat out to help out, you know, everyone start getting back to your offices, prepare to to get back to work in person. Please, can you start eating sandwiches at lunchtime kind of wave? You can feel a real change in, in the way that they're speaking now in their interviews. Matt Hancock, although he always sounds rattled to me, he sounded particularly rattled on the radio this morning when he was being asked whether even to contemplate a second wave or even to call it that is alarmist and perhaps not the right kind of language. You know, he wasn't having any of it. He was saying, you know, forgive me if I'm concerned about the health of the British people. You can tell that there's been a shift in in the thinking, particularly with the unpopular quarantining of British tourists back from Spain. You can just tell that they are fearing that there is a second wave or at least a second phase of this virus as Europe is some of Europe is experiencing now shortly around the corner. And I just think that shift in tone and in rhetoric and in optimism as well. Boris Johnson was speaking a lot about hope when he was talking about easing up the restrictions further only recently. I think that's that's taken a turn now and it's more about being prepared for a future and a sort of long-term, longer-term period than they were sort of signalling of having to go back in and out of lockdown or at least having to suffer more stringent measures such as the quarantine from certain countries that are originally on the list of places that were safe to travel to. 
this is the thing is right is is like it's it's hard to look at it and not conclude that they're right to be yeah the caseload is going up here the caseload is going up in a very big way and yeah across the world basically everywhere that is opening up is seeing a sort of fresh load of cases the one difference here is that and in some ways though, this is both a positive and a negative right the one difference here is that like and I think this is getting lost when you see people going, oh, well, there's no pre- predicted second sight. It's like, well, that's because of the other problem we have, which is people not using the extra freedoms we now have to go out and do more things, which, I mean, I, I think it's perfectly sensible for people to decide they aren't going to risk getting the novel coronavirus. But it does mean, of course, that the economy continues to be in a, a bad state. I mean, it's ultimately like you can't reopen without increasing the viral risk which means you can't reopen without having a second spike. Yeah, I've I've been interested to hear both of your thoughts on this because I've obviously come from London to Belfast recently and the the people I've been speaking to have changed a bit as we are also going through a shift in terms of the government messaging. And I find it quite quite interesting because I suppose that the problem throughout this pandemic since, since we began reporting on it is that especially you know with with staying literally at home when we're always confined to basically the prism of our own experiences and our own professional and social contact but then those those become more limited when you are mostly working from home so I've I've always wondered how representative the people I was speaking to and hearing from and the um, were and, and the impression that I was getting of the, of the general mood and stuff was but I, I do feel here and it could just be being exposed to different people but I do feel like that that opening up message has really resonated like what we're hearing from statistics here and in other countries is that it is younger people leading the the surge in cases which is not really surprising at all given that you know people want to have a summer and younger people are are generally at a lower risk but I think I find it very striking I wonder if this tallies with your own experiences I think that the big flaw in the reopening and the challenges around it is that basically I think social distancing is really hard and people are finding it very difficult and before when we were in a situation where people were staying at home or not staying at home it was easy for people to follow the guidance by eliminating their social contacts or or greatly reducing them but I think that this new situation where people are at being asked to continue as normal or take up as much of their normal lives as they feel comfortable doing within the new restrictions I think that that means that you know people are trying to go out for dinner go out for drinks meet up do those kinds of normal things but they're still expected to have mitigating factors in place so you know trying to keep a distance of of one meter or two meters you know trying to wear a mask trying to you know wash your hands more regularly have greater ventilation like those sorts of things and I just think in practice from observing things here from my own limited experience people just aren't doing that that like you can either meet up for drinks or not meet up for drinks visit people or not visit people but I think that people just in terms of politeness and how you interact with other people people like aren't really I think keeping a distance or worrying about washing their hands that much or wearing masks and because mask wearing isn't compulsory here yet and I just think I just think it's interesting that I think there hasn't maybe been enough discussion about how like 
about the social awkwardness of social distancing and how like now that we have basically shifted to depend on those mitigating factors rather than a lockdown we're seeing that adhering to those mitigating factors is is I think socially very tricky and people aren't really adhering to them in a lot of cases certainly among maybe younger demographics yeah I think I think from my own experience and also looking at some of the polling the overall picture is that compliance with the health measures that are compulsory has been quite high but I think you know you can't blame people for having no idea how stringent they have to be when they're being encouraged you know on the one hand with pictures of Rishi Sunak serving punters in Wagamama and giving out vouchers and and delivering this sort of mini budget that almost takes place in a world where the virus no longer exists and then on the other hand being warned you know probably best not to go abroad this summer make sure that you're social distancing when you're doing all of these things that we're encouraging you to do it's a bit of a whiplash I think there's a real roller coaster not only in what we're being asked to do but also in sort of the tone and the messaging and the leadership by example that's coming out of the government it's a bit confusing so I think you do like you say like you describe Alba have this strange probably not very effective compromise where if you want to go out with your friends or if you want to go for a meal you know, you have in the back of your mind that you ought to be more than a metre away from people, but it becomes too difficult. And in your mind, you have to make the decision of, you know, am I going to enjoy myself and uh, contribute to the economy and do all the things that the government wants me to do? Or am I going to go back into my lockdown mode of being quite paranoid and alert to use the language about the virus you have to make that decision as an individual you're forced into that situation whereas the government which I think Stephen's written very well is flipping between the two without realizing that that like you say it is it is mutually exclusive to try and open up the economy while at the same time stopping the virus spreading yeah it's odd like a while ago like during Brexit and I can't remember if I actually wrote up and this was a subtweet of a conversation I'd had with a senior liberal democrat or not but I wrote a piece about how I thought that there was this tendency in politics for a thing that didn't have a name but I was going to dub bothism which is when you basically say to someone like okay so your aim is to stop Brexit but also to get more Lib Dem MPs elected which would you say you were actually trying to do and the reply of course came well both (laughs) and is it bad yeah. that I, I think back to that time as a simpler time? <laughs> <laughs> it does, yeah, it does feel like, yeah, kind of like an almost like idenic sort of like <laughs> state of utopia. But in many ways, I, I do think there's this really strong tendency for political parties to basically kind of go, yeah, when asked to pick between two options, basically to go both. And I think the, the latest manifestation of that is then, is this a crisis we are going through or is this a crisis we need to live with? Uh, it's not really a crisis, it's a new way of living. And kind of in many ways, the answer the government has given is kind of both. So yeah, obviously, as you say, like, this weirdness that like, two weeks ago, the government was telling people to go abroad on holiday. And now it's just like, well, you know, the roulette wheel spins, who knows if you'll have to self isolate. And you can you can come up with a perfectly coherent policy argument for both. The thing I found really interesting about you, what you just said, Alva, is that Unless I'm wrong, looking at the the sort of overall rates, one of the big differences is you've gone from somewhere where at the start of this crisis, there was, at least in my area, a continual backdrop of ambulance sirens to one where there wouldn't have been in the same way. Yeah, I think that's, that's the, the interesting thing, having moved from 
a place that was definitely like viewed by by my family and people not people not just in Belfast but you know like family in Dublin and in the south of Ireland and in other parts of the UK like being in a city that was really viewed as like a virus hotspot and I think people were kind of worried about me being in London going from there to a place as you say that like hasn't really seen as many cases and at the moment I think there haven't been deaths in Northern Ireland for a few days and the numbers of new cases are quite low because population density is lower here and I mean Arlene Foster whenever she's interviewed on these things is is very happy to acknowledge the fact that population density is is very different in Northern Ireland to in other places I think there's some really funny statistic about how low the population density is in her constituency of Fermanagh that she always likes to trot out so yeah I think it is it is very different but I think that there's also maybe a different mindset here because if you do actually talk to people about how cases are relatively low here particularly at the moment they will say to you oh but yeah but you know there was that cluster in in Limavady last week you know all those people at that karaoke party who got it or you know oh yeah and then up in Ballina Hinch there's a cluster I think the fact that this is a sort of a smaller country and everyone knows everyone means that I think there's a more precise awareness of where the outbreaks have been and it feels much closer to home like those places are not that not that far from Belfast people know that it was actually you know literally a karaoke party where 16 people got it <laughs> and I think so it does still feel like people are living with this and there is still a, a really palpable risk of, of getting it but I, yeah, I think it is it is interesting just in terms of the way government policy is trickling down here because all, I, I think that there's been confusion the entire time here because there's, there's the very highly publicised guidance and news from the government in Westminster and those daily press conferences. And it's always been difficult, I think, for people here, as I imagine it would be in Scotland and in Wales, to work out what was UK-wide and what was England-specific. But then, you know, then there's also the Northern Ireland-specific guidance and then also a lot of measures that people would be aware of here that are coming from the Republic of Ireland, like the the sort of green lists and red lists, for example, of places that you can and can't travel to different in the Republic of Ireland. So people have, I think, a greater awareness here of how certain European countries are, are seen to be to be traveling to. Like certainly I, I mentioned that a friend of mine had been in Spain before we mentioned quarantine or before the quarantine news. And my parents were saying, oh, I don't think that's on the green list for the Republic of Ireland. So I think it is different here. And there's a greater level of confusion to the extent that people have really very little idea what the rules are. And I think in terms of policy, I think people are people are getting the headlines and, and less of the detail. So in terms of the bothism, it's a question of which which side different people are paying attention to more. I think I, I would just I'm sure this is replicated across the UK, probably across the world. I just have a real sense that some people are living basically like it's still the lockdown and haven't really changed many of their habits because they're hearing, you know, the risk of the second wave, the need for social distancing, the fact that if you do, you know, increase your social contacts and and go back a bit to normal, you are taking on a bit more risk, even if you have those mitigating factors. And then other people who are listening to the fact that this is, you know, opening up, enjoy your summer, but do so safely and who are looking at the epidemiology, seeing that cases are much lower at the moment, and just thinking that the probability of getting it isn't that high. And so I think that the, basically you're seeing people, even if the government isn't telling people to do this, you're seeing a very stratified approach where certain groups of people are taking on much more risk. 
and like like you were sort of describing Anush, not not necessarily not being aware of of certain rules or being unwilling to adhere to them, but just finding them a bit difficult and then in practice not necessarily following through with all of them while other people stay stay mostly indoors. I'm sure there'd need to be some psychological sort of research into this, but I wonder if, like you were saying, Stephen, about the hearing the sirens, I wonder if living in places where there has there has been, you know, a big spike in in infections during the peak and where it was visible and maybe you had it or maybe people that you knew or lived close to had it. And, you know, certainly on my estate, we could hear coughing and we could see we could hear ambulances every day for, you know, a a couple of weeks. I wonder if having had that experience, it's then easier to come out of lockdown and feel a bit more free and, you know, obey the government's TV adverts about enjoying your summer and going to get an ice cream, but also wearing a mask because you're kind of in the ebb and flow of it. I don't know whether that makes any sense, but you know, you feel that it's that it's subsided slightly because you've seen it when it's been at its peak. And so then you feel like you can sort of get back to slightly more normal life because you're kind of riding the wave with the figures. Yeah, I think there probably is like a lot in that. In the I, you know, I have so little faith in this government's operational competence, right? Like so kind of even before I get yeah, obviously like being ideologically opposed to the government is not a new experience. But I have a very different level of kind of just baseline contempt for, for like the government's ability to like actually do stuff. But at the same time, as with you, I have this kind of slight reassurance of, well, you can literally hear that this is better than it was. The economic problem that I think is just unavoidable is that I imagine also that like everyone is kind of also basically being like, I will take this risk for the following things I really love and value. I mean, like, so let's say that, you know, we did work for a employer who decided they were going to make us all come into the NS offices like come what may I'm still not going to get in a socially distanced queue for Pret. Pret's appeal is that it's like you know sort of like tolerable and quick it is neither tolerable nor quick to join a socially distanced queue where I might get COVID at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Even the posh cheddar baguette is not worth that. I miss that. I know things can you imagine how embarrassing it would be for that to be your your epitaph Oh, how did he die? You know, risking his life for a jambon bear from Pret. I mean, <laughs> for five quid. <laughs> I'm so glad you got jambon bear into the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I love that word. <laughs> If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, 
And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. Us. So we've had several questions about whether Boris Johnson is likely to survive until the next election as Prime Minister. But we're going to take this one from Rob. Thanks, Rob. Would a second wave destroy Boris Johnson politically? Anush, what do you think? I think no. And the reason for that is because Britain has, well, England has already been one of the worst performing countries in terms of deaths. So today we've had the news that we've had the highest level of excess deaths in Europe between February and, and the middle of June. And, you know, we've known about these kind of terrible comparisons for a while and I don't see necessarily in the polling a big enough shift in public attitudes towards the government and towards towards Boris Johnson and towards the government's COVID-19 response that suggests that there's some kind of electorally fatal shift in public opinion towards the prime minister so I'd say that a second wave kind of is less worse than these kind of poor comparisons for, for England in terms of other countries are suffering second waves too. Scientists have told us from, from the beginning that it could come back and it's sort of like a global suffering rather than individual to the UK. So I think because Boris Johnson hasn't suffered dramatically politically for things that are specifically bad and uniquely a failure of this country, a second wave, which is which is going to be a global trend, is not going to be something that could that could cause him to have to go or, or to not be able to fight the next election. Yeah, it's interesting. So we, we basically had, as, as well as Rob's very good question, we had like the one reason we decided to take it is we had kind of like the full gamut of, you know, will he make it? Mm. Why do you think his popularity is still resilient? Uh, you know, the, the kind of full gamut of sort of Boris questions. I, I guess I think that the reason why a second wave could be kind of sort of run on catastrophic for the government is that... One, I think a lot of the stuff which went wrong last time happened like when the sort of global rally to incumbents was at its height. And there's clearly a deep seated desire, not just here, but in general, when this kind of thing happens to kind of believe that like the people in charge have got it sussed because the alternative is too horrid to contemplate. But I think then that kind of did act as kind of like an immune system for the government almost. And I think then, therefore, kind of, and you can kind of see it a bit with how people react to things which, you know, kind of are more minor and maybe actually aren't their fault, right? Then there's kind of a slight loss of goodwill already. And so I kind of think then moods are more frayed, therefore things will just be more difficult this time. But also, like, you know, sort of parking for a moment whether or not I think this is this is the correct position for them to be in or not, right? The thing that is really striking, right, is that the government is clearly or at least the Treasury and, and therefore, you know, the most politically successful member of the government is clearly entering a kind of new phase of it's got to be paid for, you know, there's going to be some fairly tough cuts and tax rises coming down the track. And I think, like, the thing about a second spike is it's one thing to go, here's some painful cuts we said we wouldn't have to do because, you know, we spent ages indoors and we paid your wages and all of that kind of thing. It's quite another to be like, by the way, we need to get our debt to GDP ratio fixed when your firm laid you off because we tapered the furlough in August and there was a second spike anyway. And I think that's like, I just think that it makes all of the like kind of, like all of the fights that the government kind of has scheduled with the country become harder if there is a second spike of infections. It's interesting because I think I instinctively disagree, even though... I think that my instinct is really 
informed by just the past 24 hours or so. So in part one, we were talking about Matt Hancock's media round this morning. And I, I find it quite striking. I think the extent to which the government is trying to be on the front foot with this one, I've, I've seen some sort of more critical slash cynical tweets and things sort of suggesting that the government are laying the groundwork to blame a second wave on Europe. And I suppose, I mean, it is just factually correct to acknowledge the increase in cases in Europe and then to implicitly link any subsequent rise here to travel between those places. But I was quite struck by, by the way Matt Hancock was talking. I think he kind of even though some people will have saved up for a long time to go to, to, to go to Spain or to go to other places on holiday, having had you know, a quite a very tough few months and will be very frustrated with the government's U-turn on this. I think basically there's no serious criticism of the government for introducing this quarantine on people returning from Spain. I thought it was rhetorically very interesting the way Matt Hancock was slightly changing the questions being put to him this morning and turning it into, do I regret being so damn fast on bringing in quarantine on people from Spain? You know what? I don't regret being so incredibly fast. You know, I'm so super fast on this and I don't regret it for a second because we're fast. And I just thought that, you know, but the the way, as Patrick pointed out in subsequent PMQs, you could see Labour near near the beginning of this crisis when Keir Starmer was making a lot of impact at PMQs. Labour were really pushing this word slow to characterise the government's response. I think basically finding that that was, you know, critical but fair and, and also basically broadly accurate, that it wasn't like the government made mistakes in terms of doing the wrong policy. It was more that a lot of policies were, it looks like they were they were fatally too slow. They came in like far too late in lots of cases that we've talked about this so many times, but you know, guidance for care homes and so on. So I've, I had this sense listening to Matt Hancock that he is kind of trying to change the record on that. And it just made me think, you know, this, this, this is far from over. And I'm sure that they're all incredibly aware within government of, of what they've got wrong, even if they're not so good at acknowledging it publicly. But I'm sure they're also aware that they have time to to turn this around, that it's far from over. And the UK has probably basically failed round one relative to other countries in Europe, but that it has the opportunity to maybe do slightly better for round two. And I don't know how, how far the, the bothism will really work in terms in terms of getting them there. But I did think that, you know, maybe people, especially the way this has been framed as more a question of individual choice, people are being told what advice, you know, what measures they need to put in place. They need to do the social distancing. It's on them to wash their hands more, on them to wear masks. And, you know, the advice has been against essential travel, blah, blah, blah. The burden of responsibility has been shifted onto individuals and the more the global responsibility has slightly been shifted onto other European countries. So I do wonder if when there is an inevitable uptick in, in cases here, to the extent that we start calling it a second spike, maybe people will be more understanding and the government will be more on the front foot. I just had that impression from Matt Hancock that they, that they maybe are thinking that they have a, a chance, like since this isn't finished, they have a chance to maybe change things 
Yeah, it's an interesting one because it's perfectly plausible, right, that broadly it, it will turn out because we are a globalised economy, you actually can't meaningfully prevent having a huge caseload through social distancing. Now, of course, if that is the case, you're still better off having lockdown early because in the time that you lock down early, medical science in terms of how we palliatively treat the novel coronavirus has improved, right? But I, I don't think that... So let's say if like in 2021, it turns out that actually like you can't, there's no, you can't stop it via lockdown. And so it spreads through, you know, the population in New Zealand, they will still have the benefit of a year of medical advances. But I just think that in terms of the government, the perception of the government's handling, I think you're exactly right. Then people will go like, oh, we all ended up in the same place. The slightly weird thing I feel about politics at the moment, the kind of thing we have to sort of handicap all of our analysis with is that this is like a weird situation where the whole of the economy is kind of like that summer after after Lehman collapsed, when like you could really tell something terrible was about to happen, right? If you didn't have guaranteed hours, your hours were getting cut, your custom was going down, right? Like just it was really obvious that things were gonna get really quite bad. But they hadn't actually got that bad for very many people yet. And the economy and the virus and basically everything is kind of in that position now in politics. And it's not clear to me whether or not when that stops being the case, whether or not the kind of, you know, basically, yeah, the the kind of, I think the thing which separates pessimists in the Tory party from optimists in the Tory party is the pessimists basically think that what matters about this bit of the parliament is that Keir Starmer has successfully made himself non-frightening. And when those like inevitable forces come to roost, the fact that Keir is a sort of safe home for disgruntled Tory voters means that the walls will come tumbling down. Or if you think things have gone so badly wrong, the government's still pretty popular, therefore they'll definitely be fine. And it's kind of the known unknown, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's that's really true, because if you remember, the, the original lockdown delay was because they thought that the public would, would grow fatigued with being in lockdown after two or three weeks. And obviously that didn't happen. And there was a public that was willing to be very compliant and indeed critical of, of the of the slowness with which they locked down. So like you say, Alva, with Matt Hancock saying we've been quick to do X, Y and Z, they'll probably want to be quick to bring in stricter measures again, come a, a second wave. But like you say, Stephen, the public's attitude could be completely different by then. Now that the furlough scheme may have been wrapped up by that point, businesses are collapsing and, you know, more and more people are en masse being affected by this. You know, that that's a complete unknown. We don't know whether people's attitudes will, will change entirely. And, and of course, lots of people are self-employed, own businesses, depend on, on the um, health of their employer. And all of those things are going to suffer if they have to close everything down again, having been working hard and, and, and paying money to try and become COVID compliant for these new sort of looser rules that are supposed to be coming in tomorrow, I think, or the day after tomorrow. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. When 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.